You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. gather today, that we get to hear your word preached, and we get to have it touch our hearts and our lives. God, that it is an encouragement for us who believe and who are your children that have found life in you. But for those that don't know you this morning, God, it is a hard question that they have to wrestle with of of who is God, what has he done, and and how are we to respond. God, this morning we're going to be seeing that over and over again, that you call us to respond a response that has dire consequences if we choose not not to believe in you. And so, God, we pray this morning that as this truth is preached, that you would have our hearts be softened, that we would respond in repentance and faith and seeking after you, and that it would spur conversations and, and life change and seeking after you fully with our lives and with our hearts and our relationships and interactions. And so, we pray this morning that we would we just do that. We've experienced you. We know that you are here. We know that you are at work. We thank you for that. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Chris. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Josh, and I'm going to be uh, leading us in a time of studying God's Word. As you guys can see, uh, I'm going to be using the dry erase board uh, to kind of walk through this passage of Scripture in Matthew 21, 18 through 22, 14. Uh, and there's one request that's been made to me. One is to not write like a four-year-old. So I promise I will do my best. I'll try to write large enough that you can see it. But I would also invite you guys, if you can't see the, the, the board all that well, feel free to, to move forward, and that will, uh, that will help. Get a little closer, so I don't mind if, I, if any of you guys want to move up there and do that. So this past week, uh, I was out last week speaking in another church down in Albany, but I listened to, uh, to Royce's message online, and it really struck me as I pulled up our website and I went to that little listen tab that this week is our 62nd sermon in the book of Matthew, okay? 62 sermons in the book of Matthew. Now... We're halfway there. I know that this may seem a little uh, unusual for uh, someone to say that's preaching, but uh, me and Royce are kind of tired of the book of Matthew, right? I mean, back in 2014, when we sat down and said, hey, what do we want to talk about? We had finished, I think, the book of Ephesians, and I was like, let's do a gospel. Let's do Matthew, because it's got so many great stories in it. And Royce, Royce, I remember him telling me, you know that's going to take forever. And I was like, nah, it'll be fine. Like, we'll just blow through it real quickly. And, you know, like over 18 months later, we're at the last week of Jesus's life, but it's also the longest part of the Gospels is the last week of Jesus's life. So I just want to encourage you guys just to stay engaged in the story. The story is culminating, right? Not only all that Jesus has said and done over the last uh, two years, 
two and a half years, but also the, the Old Testament story, the story of God is climaxing in this moment of Jesus going to the cross. So we need to kind of focus in our hearts and our minds and stay engaged in this story. Now we're going to take a break in the fall, like Roy said, I think he said, uh, from Matthew to do kind of a a one-off kind of topical series. We've just been working our way uh, expositionally through the book of Matthew. And so we're going we're gonna to take a break in the fall uh, for a few months off, talk about some other stuff, but then we'll pick up Matthew back at the beginning of the year and hopefully finish around uh, Easter time. But, but let's stay with it. So we're at this point in the story where Jesus is going to become even more direct and what can also be perceived as harsh in his language particularly in the way that he talks to the religious establishment in his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, okay? So a part of the story of God is that when his people who he covenants with, when they choose to reject him, there's a consequence for that rejection, right? That's a part of the covenant. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. And if you reject me, there's consequences because of that. Now, we don't always like that. But God is just and God is good, right? So there are consequences when we rebel against a good and just God. If God didn't, if there wasn't a judgment for our rebellion against God, then God wouldn't be good and therefore he couldn't be God. That makes sense, right? So in the Old Testament, what you see is the story of the nation of Israel who reject God. They are judged and they go into exile, right? Well, then once again, the nation of Israel, Jesus comes to them and he presents himself as the Messiah, the promised one of God that they've been waiting for their whole life, but they don't like who he is and the way that he looks, uh, the way that he talks about God's kingdom. And so they are rejecting him once again. So there's going to be judgment toward them once again for this rejection. And this is where our story picks up today is this very in-your-face kind of language from Jesus toward these group of people, the, particularly the Jewish leaders, because of their continued rejection to him. So I want to invite you guys to stand. We always stand as a church. We're going to read through a large section of Matthew because it's all recorded as one part. It's all together. So we're going to go from Matthew 21, 18, all the way through Matthew 22, 14. It'll be up here on the screens. We read out of the ESV Bible. That's what's up on the screen. So if it's a little unfamiliar, that, that's why. I've asked Nate Zerfoss to be our reader for us. Because uh, I don't want to, you know, have to read that much scripture. And I really appreciate you doing it because I have to preach. So uh, Nate's going to read, and then uh, we'll pray together afterwards. You guys remain standing. Uh, Matthew twenty-one eighteen. In the morning, as they were returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to the mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, 
Why then do you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to go get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyards to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous to our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I'm going to read a little, just a little farther than that, okay? Uh, uh, the parable of the wedding feast, I'm going to do that, that one too because the three of them kind of go together. It says, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, 
but few are chosen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you once again just asking that you would open up our hearts to know your word. Uh, Father, we know there's a lot happening right now in the narrative in Jesus' life, or a lot of predictions being fulfilled. I pray that you would just allow us to see all of that. Uh, but also, God, would you open up our own hearts to see uh, our own rebellion towards you? Uh, and would you speak to us uh, and, and point out those ways that we've rejected you also as our Savior? We ask this in your name. Amen. You guys have a seat. So our story here picks up the next day. Jesus, as we talked about last week, went to the temple. Uh, the temple had been turned into a, he called it a den of robbers. They were using this place where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come and receive forgiveness of sins, right? They had turned it into a marketplace where they were selling all, all of these animals. They had, in and of, of themselves, what they were doing wasn't wrong, but the place where they were doing it was very, was very wrong. So Jesus is, is returning back to the temple the next day. He left, he's staying in Bethany, he's going back to Jerusalem. And this is where our story takes place here. Now, it's really interesting, right? This is one of those types of stories, particularly the fig tree story, when you read it, it seems really weird, right? Was what Jesus didn't like trees? You know, I mean, what's up with him cursing a tree and it withering and all that stuff? Well, once again, we'll have to look at the bigger picture of what God's doing to understand the story, right? We'll have to understand that what happens this last week of Jesus's life is very symbolic. Everything that happens that we're going to read about in this last week of his life is pointing to something much bigger, a greater work that God is doing, right? So Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He's, he's hungry. He sees a fig tree. He goes up to the fig tree and notices it doesn't have, it's, it's ripe, right? He sees the leaves are ripe, so the fruit should be ripe. We know that in Portland right now. There's apples falling all over the place as you walk down our city streets, right? Jesus approaches this tree, and there's nothing on it. And so he curses the tree, right? Well, the tree kind of withers and dies. Now, in Mark's recording of how these events happen, uh, Jesus curses a tree, then they go back to the temple, and they have this conversation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then on the way back, they notice that the tree is withered. Luke doesn't exactly record it like that. It's not a big detail. I don't think it's a big deal. The fact is, Jesus cursed the tree, and it withered, right? Well, this is really surprising to the disciples. It says they marveled at it, right? Which struck me as kind of odd, because... They did see the man calm a storm. He did walk on water, but apparently the withering of, fig, of a fig tree is a big deal to them. And they're like, oh my gosh, like, look at this guy can do. He can wither a fig tree. Well, they're having this conversation, and Jesus takes the opportunity to make an analogy about a bigger work that is going on that he is doing, right? And he tells them, he says, you can, if you ask anything in prayer, my Father will do it. You can even ask a mountain to be thrown into the sea, and it will be done. Well, let's be honest, that's even weirder than the fig tree thing, right? Like, what's going on here? Like, if we, just, if we just do a literal reading of the Scripture, then that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Jesus is cursing trees and throwing mountains into the ocean, right? We have to remember where he's at. He's leaving Bethany. He's approaching Jerusalem. Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion, right? At the top of Mount Zion laid the temple. This place where the people came to offer their sacrifices. Jesus just came in the day before and symbolically overturned this temple marketplace. A picture of him overturning the whole sacrificial system. Jesus has already called himself the temple, right? He's already said there's another way that God is going to be providing for the people to come to him. So we can read this story and realize that it's symbolism. The fig tree represents the nation of Israel, right? The mountain represents 
the Old Testament sacrificial system that is being overthrown. So given that the Old Testament, right, describes judgment of Israel in terms of a land producing no fruit, right, even in the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea calls the nation of Israel a barren fig tree. Jesus, in Luke 13, said that if a tree doesn't bear any fruit, a fig tree, it's to be, it's to be cut down. So now that we understand the pictures, right, then we can even look in the fact that Mark, when he records this, he actually sandwiches the temple purification scene of Jesus like tossing the temple that we talked about last week in between the fig tree and the mountain story. So it's, it's just almost certainly correct for us to see this passage as a foreshadowing of the destruction of the temple. It's a foreshadowing of the destruction of the sacrificial system, right? That's how we need to learn to read, read the Bible. Read it in context. Read it about what is happening around it. So God is about to overthrow a system that he has set up for people to come to him, right? He's doing this for two reasons. One is it's an ineffective system because it requires human beings to do something, right? It's also ineffective because the religious leaders have taken this system and they've used it to place a burden on the people. That's why Jesus said, my burden is easy, my burden, my yoke is light, right? This is the reason Paul called the Old Testament the law a curse in the book of Romans, right? You guys get get why, why he's using that particular language? So God, they've used this whole system to burn down the people and to give themselves power and authority. This is why Jesus speaks so forcefully to the religious establishment. I mean, so far in the book of Matthew, he's called them a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, weeds that need to be burned, blind leading the blind, and hypocrites, just to name a few. It's not flattering language, right? It's very harsh in the way that he's talking because they have completely distorted this system that God has created for people to come to him. So they're going to be judged because of that. Well, then Matthew records the next story of this dialogue between Jesus and the, and the religious establishment as evidence that warrants this harsh judgment against them, right? So Jesus comes back to the temple the next day. They've cleaned up the mess, right? They've got their temple all back in order. And they say, who gives you authority to trash our temple? And what they want to do is they want to trap Jesus. So they're trying to get Jesus to admit that he is God in front of this big crowd of people that are there. Because they know that if Jesus says that, if he admits outright that his authority comes from God and he is God, then the people will automatically start rejecting him. We know this inevitably happens when they crucify him, right? That's why Jesus is sent to the cross. Are you the king of the Jews? Yep, I am. I'm, I'm the king. And the people kill him because of it. But his time hadn't yet come. So what does Jesus do? He uses the same tactic of their question, and he asks them another question that he knows they're not going to answer, right? It's pretty cool when you think about the way that Jesus operates. So Jesus says, okay, let me ask you a question. You ask me where I got my authority. Here's your question. Is John the Baptist from God? Is he from heaven? Or is John the Baptist from man? Is he just like a normal guy that's just making all this stuff up? Well, the religious leaders kind of get together and they're like, okay, if we say that John the Baptist is from God, like what the people believe, then what we're doing is automatically affirming who Jesus is because John said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, right? This is my beloved son. And they're not going to say that about Jesus. 
But then if they say that John the Baptist is just a normal man who made all this stuff up, the people love John, and they're going to attack him. And like they'll lose all their power, and they'll lose all of their authority. And it says they don't answer the question, right? Which is really interesting. Well, the irony is Jesus is going to go on and answer the question for them in these next couple of parables. It's really clever the way that he works. Jesus is going to use a story, a parable, to talk about what is actually going on right now in the, in the, in the kind of the meta-narrative of God's story. He's going to pick three parables. He's going to do the parable of the sons, the parable of the get, the parable of the tenants, and the parable of the guests. All three parables have the exact same point, right? They're all really similar. They all say basically the exact same thing, and it's the reason that I decided to put them all together because they're basically the same story. So what I want us to do is look at these three parables to see what they teach, what Jesus is trying to teach about what is happening right then at that time in the story. And it's going to talk about who God is. He's already done that a lot. He said God's the shepherd that pursues the wandering sheep. God's the king that, that gives uh, uh, laborers what they do not deserve, right? God's the, a king that forgives when you shouldn't be forgiven. He's kind of talked about God in these parables so far. Well, today he's going to say God is a, a patient father, God is a patient master, and God is a patient king. And you, nation of Israel, and particularly those religious leaders, have rejected me as the father, they've rejected me as the master, and they've rejected me as the king. So let's look at that. I want to use the dry erase board. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read one of the parables, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. Read a parable, talk about it, read a parable, and talk about it. You guys tracking? Okay. First parable. So he says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the, and said the same. And he answered, I go, or I will go, but then did not. Which of the two did the will of the father? So Jesus is asking those, those leaders this. They said, well, the first, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. Okay. My attempt at decent handwriting. The first story is called Two Sons. The second story, we're going to call it Two Tenants. And the last story, we're just going to call Two Guests, although it's two types of guests. Did I spell everything? It's too small? Hey, hey, I didn't say you got to criticize my writing. I said I would do better. I was going for legible. Thank you, John. To guest. You know what? One time I had somebody come and do this for me. I think it was Amy because you were a teacher. And I was like, I should have thought about that. Okay. So in this story, what we have is each, each story has a, has a, a leader, a, a kind of a, a master, a father. So we have what I want to call as a patient father, right? You see a father that has these two sons. The reason I call him a patient father is because he goes to the first son and tells him to do something, and the son says, oh, yes, he does. I'll do it, and he doesn't do anything, right? But then the father doesn't go back and then, like, whoop the son, 
right? He just then goes on to the next son. So you have a, a patient father. You also have a setting for this story. Now, this setting uh, we'll call a, uh, a, a fa- like a family farm. It's actually like a vineyard, but we'll just go family farm is the setting, right? So very paternal. This is our look at that. Here you have a command. And the command is, sons, from the father, I want you to go and I want you to work my vineyard, right? Go out and, go out and work the vineyard. And then you have a response from the sons. Now, this is true in all of the stories. Response. Now, the response is really interesting. The first son says that he will go, but then he doesn't actually go do anything. So we could call that a confessional faith, right? He confessed that he would do something. But he doesn't actually do it. So confessional. This is going to be a little smaller. Well, the second son says that he's not going to go, but then he winds up going. So he actually has a functional faith. Confessional versus functional, right? In the two stories. Well, then what happens at the end of the story is there is an indictment. Jesus indicts the Pharisees just like the father indicts the sons, right? We see it there at the end. He says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes get into the kingdom before you. He uses the two lowest in society to say these are the ones that get into the kingdom. Not because they confess me as Savior, but because functionally they were obedient to do the things that I called them to do, right? Therefore, they are going to be allowed into the kingdom of God. That's our first story. Make sense? Well, we're going to have these same characters in the next story. Look here, verse 33. Here's another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. So this time we have master, or uh, I'm going to go patient master, because this guy is really, really patient. Patient master. Our setting here is the master plants a vineyard. But look at the the way that it describes the vineyard that he plants. The master has planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. So the master has a lot of care in what he provides for the workers, not just provides for the vineyard. But this time, it's like a, a secure... Uh, more like a business. Master plants a vineyard. He builds these towers, digs a wine press, leases it out to the tenants. Well, look at what happens. He goes into another country, and when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servant to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. So this would have been multiple servants coming over multiple periods of time. Now, in the larger story, these guys represent the prophets of the Old Testament right? If the Jewish people are the ones rejecting God in the story, just like the fig tree, just all throughout the Old Testament, we saw that replay over and over again. God is very patient. I mean, the Old Testament, you know, can, can be recorded up to like 5,000 years of history. And the pattern is God gives the people grace. He gives them protection. He gives them the Garden of Eden. They reject God, but he provides another way for them, right? Then he creates the nation of Israel, and they reject God, uh, and, he provide, and they wind up in slavery, and then he, he comes in and he rescues them, right? And he gives them the law, and they reject him, 
right? They go to follow other nations, so they go to exile, but then he rescues them outside of it in, in Jesus Christ. This is God's pattern of story. There's a creation, a fall, a redemption, a restoration. It happens over and over again. So this is, this is God's business, and they, he gives them a command, again, is to reap the harvest and give me what's mine as the master. This is what I paid you to do. You get yours, but I also am the, am the master, well, they, they not only kill these different servants, finally the patient master sends his son, and he thinks that they would respond to the son, right? I mean, if my son showed up, this would show how serious I am and how much I care. But you know what the tenants think when they see the son? They think the master has died. And all they have to do is kill the son, and then they get to take over the vineyard, Right? This is what we call idolatry. This is their response. There's a master who created a vineyard and gave it to people. Those people decide to reject the master and place themselves as the master in the story. This is what the nation of Israel had done by this point in the, in the, in the text, right? They were operating in the place of God. They were keeping people out of the kingdom of God. This is a harsh sentence against them. So this time, what we see is it goes from a, a command and a response of idolatry, a, a rejection of God. Now there is a sentencing. Do you see a growing pattern here? Indictment. You're not going to... Prostitutes and tax collectors get in the kingdom before you. Now look at this in verse 41. He, he says to those tenants, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the, the fruits of their season. And then he goes to this Old Testament illusion, once again, of this temple being, being destroyed. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing much fruit. Indictment, sentencing, third story. Here we go. Parable of the wedding feast. And again, Jesus spoke to them in a parable saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast. So this time, you have a, a patient king. The venue is a wedding feast. Okay? And he, and he sends his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, those chosen few who were invited, right, the Jews. But they would not come. And he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Just come to the feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servant, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy, right? I prepared the whole thing. I made it easy for them to come, but they chose not to come. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Now everyone's involved. Everyone's invited to the feast. It's not just about the Jews. And those servants went out into the roads, and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But the king came in to look at the guests, and he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to them, friend, how did you get here? How did you get in here without a wedding garment? 
And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This time, patient king, wedding feast, once again a command, and the command is come and feast, right? Come, enjoy the the bounty of my kingdom, enjoy relationship with me. Come be a part of the family, right? But this time, their response is first excuses of busyness, of life, like we're going to talk about next month, the craziness of life, okay? But then it moves beyond excuses to actual murder of the servants, just like what we had here was murder of the son. We now have murder of the of the of the of the servants and then what is our our response to that there's an execution i warned you guys right i'm good i i can't allow sin to go unpunished here's going to be the consequence you're going to be separate from me and it's going to be bad right i mean the language that it uses here is, is, is harsh. Bind them hand and foot. Cast them out of that. Well, at first, he says, when they seized his servants and treated them shamefully, the king was angry, and he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers. This is in verse 7. And burned their city. Okay? The, 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 kingdom, the, the city of Jerusalem will be burned in, in AD 70. God will use the Romans to cast his final judgment upon the Jewish people. The temple will be destroyed, and it will never be risen back up. Still to this day, today the Dome of the Rock sits there, right, on top of the Temple Mount. So the Jews, they faced a consequence. Being God's chosen people that he had covenanted with, there was a unique consequence to them. But then he goes on to talk about a second group of people, right? The two guests. The first guests would have been the Jews. The second guests would have been everybody else that's invited to the table now. All of us right, are invited to the table of God. But here's the problem. Once again, we try to come to God on our own terms, don't we? And a guest shows up at the feast without wearing the proper garment. Or culturally, what would happen if you were going to go to a feast, the, the, get, the king would give you a garment to wear, right? It recognized that you are a special member of this, of, this, of this party, this invitation, and you could wear it. Well, this guy shows up on his own terms before, before the king. And the king says, that's not how this works. Well, what in the world's going on in the text here? It's a theological term that we, a term that we have given called, the, called imputed righteousness. Okay? Just as a king would give a cloak that would allow someone into the feast, we have to have something placed upon us that pays for the sacrifice of our sins so that we can then be a part of the presence of God. These are just truths and realities of how God works and how his kingdom works. Jesus is our imputed righteousness. His blood was placed upon us, making us pure, right? It's a robe of righteousness that allows us to then enter into the the presence of God and feast with God, right? You don't get to decide your terms for coming to God. There is one way. There is one truth. Now there's two paths. There's one path that leads to God, 
It's a narrow path. It's a path with Jesus as the way and Jesus as the door. And then there's a wide path. It's a path that leads to destruction. It's a path of you and me as God's creation living life the way that we choose and rejecting the Father, rejecting the Master, and rejecting the King. This is the state of humanity. The reason the Bible covers so much history is because God wanted us to see over and over and over again this pattern of our rejection to Him. But at the same time, God wanted us to see His patience, His patience, His patience. Now the hard truth, and I know some of us don't like this, and maybe some of you in this room don't agree with this. There will be a day of judgment for everyone who has ever lived They will have to stand before God. And the only thing that will allow you to sit at the feast is the imputed righteousness of Jesus. That you declare in that song that we sang, how great thou art. You are are Lord, I am not. I needed a sacrifice. I needed a debt paid for me. And Jesus ransomed me and brought me into the kingdom of God. I know some of you in here today are are not followers of Jesus, that you're just kind of checking this whole thing out, not really sure, probably seen a really bad picture of the church at some point in your life, and you're like, I don't really want to be a part of what I experienced in the past. What I'm calling you to is this picture of who Jesus paints as the reality of God, of his patience and his love for you. But that patience at some point will come to an end. The story has an end to it. But here's the cool thing. Jesus models the love and the grace of God for you in this story, although he's never even mentioned. Well, where is Jesus in the story? Jesus, he's this son who confesses God, but he also functionally displays God in this life on earth that we've been studying about for the last year and a half. Jesus is the son of the master who comes warning the tenants, and he dies for the tenants. But instead of God's righteous wrath being placed on those tenants that rejects him, God chooses to place it on the son. And the cool thing is, because of that, you actually now get to own the vineyard. You get to be a part of the family of God, a part of the inheritance of God's kingdom. And Jesus is also the son of the king in the wedding feast. I mean, that's what the book of Revelation is about, that there's going to be a feast. And Jesus is the groom, and we are the bride, and we're invited to this free feast. But in order to get get in... You have to accept Jesus as your Savior. You have to allow his righteousness to be placed upon you because you owe a debt that you cannot pay. You've rejected God. You've rejected God. I've rejected God over and over again. I have to believe that there's something outside of myself that allows me to enter into the kingdom of God, and it's a sheer act of grace displayed through Jesus Christ on the part of all of us. Okay? I want to hit how this passage ends real quick. Because it's heavy, really, really heavy. So Jesus ends saying this, many are called, but few are chosen. Let that sink in. Many are called, all are invited, right? I mean, the, the way God in and of himself 
is very inclusive. He's a very inclusive God. He want, he got, Jesus demonstrates that in his parables. We can read about it in the story. But the way to God is very exclusive. It's through Jesus Christ. And because of that, many people who choose God will not be allowed into the kingdom of heaven because they have not chosen Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, if Jesus' statistics are right, more will reject him than will choose him. And God has chosen less. And I don't know what many is. He doesn't give numbers. I mean, in the parable of the sowers, he said one in four gets into the kingdom. One in four who have confessed Christ is actually allowed in. Once again, he reaffirms that and says many are called, but few are chosen, which would make me think less than half, at least, of those people who think they are in the kingdom of God are not a part of the kingdom of God at all. How do we know, right? How do we know if we're in the kingdom or we're out of the kingdom? Well, it starts off confessionally. You know, Romans 10, 9. Confess with your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. But then it has to move on to that, to a functional faith. That's what this parable displays is a functional faith. Now, here's the cool thing that I saw when I read this parable. Put up our, uh, our, our, our diagram here that we used. We've chosen three identities to represent the way that we should respond to the mission of God, right? We've said that we believe that we're servants of God, drawing to Christ, and we've said here as a church, this is how we draw to Christ, through prayer, worship, and scripture. We've said we believe that we're family of God, family together, brothers and sisters, and we need to deploy into our community. We do that through peacemaking. We do that through sharing of our possessions with one another. We do that through celebrating life together. But we've also said, well, there's another identity. We're also ambassadors of God, right? Who he's called for us to incarnate, to deploy into this culture. And we do that through hospitality, acts of service, and evangelism. All three of those identities are in these parables. It's almost like he thought about this before we came up with it. I know. Right here. Family, right? These are servants. This is ambassadors. To be a part of the kingdom of God is to bear fruit. How do we bear fruit? We are, I'll start here, we are the servants of the master, right? That's the proper attitude. We are here to serve God. God is not here to serve us. So we need to know God. We need to devote ourselves to the word. We need to devote ourselves to prayer. We are also family. We're a part of, 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 of the family of God. He's the father. Jesus has made us sons and daughters. So as a, a family, we grow in our relationship with one another. That's bearing fruit, committing to relationships, committing to community. But also, we're ambassadors of the king, called to take the message of the king out into this world. That's why this is so important for us to continue to engage in the mission of God with God. Not that it saves us, it proves, it shows evidence in our hearts that God has done this work. So I want to challenge you guys to do one of two things. Those of you who are not Christians who are here, God is calling you today. 
He's placing an invitation. He chose that you would sit in this room right now and that you would hear Jesus say these things. And he's giving you a a, a loving warning and a loving rebuke. You can only reject me for so long. I leave this next week and go back home for the funeral of, of a family member, my cousin John. He died at 43 of liver cancer, right? A year and a half ago was diagnosed, and they said, hey, man, your chances are very slim. And he fought, he fought it, and he fought it, and he fought it. And then he passed away this past Tuesday, right? We're going to go home for that funeral and speak at the funeral. You just you never know, right? I don't want to be one of these doomsday people that's like, you know, God can come back at any moment. But think about what you're risking by continuing to reject God and reject his word. Look at at who Jesus is. Look look at the great lengths that God went to to make a way for you to come to him. Look at his grace. Look at his patience. Why why wouldn't you want to sit down and feast with God? And then for those of us who are Christians, God has determined the mission, not us. I'm going to turn this off. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.